everybody, and welcome back to more of a comment than a question. I am one of your hosts. I argue the primary host. <laughs> Rachel doesn't agree. Uh, my name is Paul Connor, and I'm joined by Rachel Hartman, uh, who I argue is the secondary lesser host of the podcast. Um, but she's she's here, and <laughs> she's. <laughs> Okay, she's making, I'm she's do, uh, through my my <laughs> terrible I'm introduction. Just interrupt I'm sorry, you, I know which you, is my job to do that. So you're not uh, on board with this trolling each other in the introductions. No, thing, I but think it's, it's mainly because you're too lazy to think of anything. That's and it's really like, what it is. Yeah, that was a low effort troll on on my behalf, though I have to admit. Yeah. So anyway, and Rachel. and I agree with it. You are the primary host, and that's why it's completely your fault that we just disappeared for a month or more and uh, didn't even let all of our listeners know that we'd be taking a break. And the reason for the break is that you were out vacationing in Hawaii, which is like, yeah, I feel like that was important to mention. Oh yeah. I remember that. Rachel thinks I should (laughs) apologize uh, to you, the listeners. I don't agree. As I was just saying, it's a free service. We've, we've signed no contract. We've made no promises about how often we record and yeah, I took a holiday in Hawaii. So, so sue me, people. <laughs> uh, no, so yeah, I did. I took a holiday in Hawaii, and um, uh, it was it was. Look, Hawaii is a beautiful place. Like it's a tourist trap for a reason. The weather is amazing. The natural beauty is amazing. Having said that, I do not recommend holidaying with an eighteen-month-old toddler or 70-year-old parents, and definitely don't recommend holidaying with all of these people at the same time and trying to find activities that suit everybody and accommodate your toddler's midday nap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't the most relaxing, enjoyable holiday ever, but as I say that, I'm very conscious that this is like, you know, if you have the chance to holiday to Hawaii and meet your parents there and stuff like that. You really don't have much cause for complaining in this world. So yes. Uh, anyway, uh, we're back and I do not apologize for the absence, but Rachel, how have you been? (laughs) Um, I've been good. Uh, I haven't been vacationing anywhere, but we are buying a new house. And so we've been in the process of putting down payment for the house and also selling our current house. And there's a lot of it's really fun, but also a lot of uncertainty involved in like, is the house going to be ready by the time we need to move in? And should we lock down our mortgage rate now or wait? And there's just like a lot of moving parts. Um, yeah. So it's hard to make these big decisions, but you know, we're also can't complain because it's going to be a nice big house in a beautiful community and um, someday I'll convince you and should do me to join me there. <laughs> Oh, this is this shared <laughs> intentional community kind of thing. Yeah, master about. plan community. Interesting, interesting. We'll have to go into it at some point on the pod. But, <laughs> yeah, but anyway. Right um, now we should, our guest has been waiting very patiently. Uh, so we do have a guest today. Very excited to have him on. Uh, Ethan Milne or Milne? Milne. Milne. Ethan Milne is a graduate student at uh, the Ivy Business School at Western University in Canada. He's a marketing student, not a psychologist, but that's okay. Uh, we, we are cool with marketing students as well as psychology students. That's about as far as our tolerance stretches. But, um, <laughs> it's good to hear. So, uh, Ethan, you, um, 
I have to say, like, I, I'm like a fan of yours. This is, this is like exciting to me. So there's, we started the podcast and we have this sort of Twitter presence and stuff like that. And there's just a few people that I've been connected to because of that, because of starting the pod that I really, I value the connection. Like I, I really like following you on Twitter. I recommend everybody listening to this if, if they don't already follow you. I think, uh, you know, I just think, well, let's face it. It's mainly because, like, I mostly agree <laughs> agree with your takes on things. Like, and I kind of, I kind of like people that think about uh, things in a similar way to me. But yeah, it's it's really nice to uh, finally meet. Yeah, it's it's great to meet both of you as well. Um, it's it's really nice to be on this podcast. Um, I'll I'll just note that Paul apparently has a history of silencing his female co-hosts. Um, I promise, Smriti. Uh, very long ago <laughs> that I would ask why she's being silenced yet again. So I figured I would do that now. Well, people don't really know this, but Smriti's still here and I just have her like perpetually on mute. <laughs> so she's like. <laughs> oh, we're, we're, we're telling true. people that? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's time. No, so like Paul, Paul just likes to talk and share his opinions and sometimes like talks over people and interrupts and doesn't doesn't give his co-hosts enough. I, like, I'm aware of it. I'm aware that I have a problem. And, and you know, I think by now most listeners are too. And, you know, every every now and then I get a, a reminder when I, like, look at our respective audio files. And when I he just... says every now and then, like, every other week when we record. <laughs> yeah, I just feel these pangs of shame when I see these audio files and I can see, like, it's quite an effective data visualization of how much Paul talked versus how much Rachel talked. So... Yeah, thanks for that reminder at the at the outset of the pod. I'll um I'll do my best to shut the hell up this this podcast. But um we have like too many things that we want to talk about. Uh so we should just get started. Um so the first thing that we wanted to talk about was uh TikTok. And because you want to talk so much, Rachel, why don't you introduce this subject? <laughs> okay. Um first of all, I wanted I feel like I'm too old for TikTok. <laughs> I think that's a, I don't know if that's a controversial take. I feel like people will often use that as an excuse, like, oh, I'm too old for this new technology and like, just leave me out of it. But I just, I don't get it. Um, <laughs> so I don't have a TikTok. Uh, and I feel like I, if I did, I would just like, I would spend all my time there. And so that's probably why I'm avoiding it. But Ethan is uh professional TikTok person. And um, I mostly know that from him sharing stuff from TikTok on Twitter. I wish I got paid for it, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Professional. I just mean like good at it. Um, And so, yeah. And, uh, but I'm going to leave it at that and ask you to tell us more about what you do on there and uh, why you've decided to do stuff on TikTok and uh, how useful it's been. And yeah, just tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I, I mean, one of the big reasons I wanted to go on TikTok in the first place is I'm a much younger person. I find that whenever I'm in academic spaces, I'm 23 um, in my second year. So when I started my PhD, I think I was 21. Um, I'm a lot younger than most of the people that I'm around. And when I go online in professor or academic spaces, uh, the social norms are a lot different than the ones that I am used to. You know, I, I, I grew up um, on Tumblr as a kid. 
I, I've spent my entire life online. Um, and then TikTok was just something that people in my generation, I think I'm at the, the older edge of Generation Z, are doing. One of the things I noticed about academic Twitter was that there's sort of already um, people with their economic moats of followers. Um, you know, th th there's academics who have tens of thousands of followers. And frankly, a newcomer is not going to get up to that status in a quick amount of time. Why not do that on a new social media platform? Uh, so I joined TikTok just because it seemed like a fun way to get in early on the next big thing and talk about some of the things that I like. So mostly what I do on TikTok is I communicate the results of scientific studies that I read um, to my audience. And a lot of the time, it feels a lot like parents kind of mashing in uh, shredded carrots into chocolate chip cookies, trying to get people to eat something healthy by packaging it in something nice. So I, I, I try and communicate, for example, um, I'll talk about the, the theories of moral intuitionism, but you package it in, is incest morally neutral or not, right? You, you just grab them with some big eye-catching topic and then actually teach them something, hopefully, as you do it. Um, so there's the teaching aspect of it that I really like. It's a way for me to kind of give back to others. I also learn a lot from TikTok in a couple different ways. Um, when I was working on my comprehensive exam, which I'm sure all of us have gone through, uh, you know, you have to read a lot of papers for doing that. And one of the ways that I motivated myself is if I'm reading multiple papers a day, at least one of them is going to be interesting enough to share to other people. And I can read it with the intent of communicating it in the form of a one-minute summary video. So I can do that on TikTok. It helped me learn a lot. And the, the next thing that I do is uh, I do a lot of polls uh, for basically whatever I'm curious about. Um, sometimes I like to replicate other TikToks. Sometimes I just want to know what people's responses are. So to give one example, um, I actually didn't realize this, but uh, a couple months ago, I think I did a TikTok about Rachel's paper um, about do you view your uh, political opponents as more stupid than evil? I think I saw that paper. I think Kurt Gray shared it. Um, and I, I didn't make the connection that it was your paper. Um, but I made a poll about it asking people, do you think that your political opponents are more stupid than evil? I think I got something like 20,000 responses. And it was like 70% said, yeah, they're stupid. They're not necessarily evil. Nice. But when I'm doing the polls, uh, the, the, the nice thing as well is that not only do I get that kind of top level percent number, um, I also get a lot of qualitative data in the sense that people get to write these kind of free form responses that I read through as I'm monitoring and moderating my own comment sections. So for example, on the are your political opponents more stupid than evil? I got a ton of people saying, well, I think the average Republican is stupid, but I think Republican leaders are evil. And so they started to draw these distinctions between the people in charge and the people who are following. And so I find stuff like that really useful. So as I went through my comprehensive exams, I'd be posting these papers, doing polls based on the papers, just to solidify my understanding and hopefully teach other people about that too. And what I finally moved on to uh, at the later stage of my professional TikTok career is I'm starting to use it to get data for real studies and papers that I'm doing. So I recently finished running a qualitative study with participants entirely sourced from TikTok, which has been really, really useful and very helpful. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm really glad you replicated my <laughs> results. Otherwise, I uh, would have had to go back and figure out what went wrong. But um, yeah, and how many followers do you have on TikTok? Right now, I have about 364,000 followers, and I've been kind of holding steady at that for a few months. I think when I, I started two years ago, and I think it took me about a year to get to maybe 20,000 followers. And when I got to that point, I had one breakout video. I thought, oh, I could take this a little bit more seriously. And so in the past year, I went from 20K to 364K. 
Damn. Yeah. What was the break? What was the breakout video? Uh, so my big breakout video was I did a series of would you rather questions inspired by Jonathan Haidt's um, papers. So uh, actually, not just Jonathan Haidt's papers. I'm blanking on the on the name of one of the authors. They did this really cool study where they had people come into the lab and they were told, "Well, would you rather?" Um, uh, take this anti-racist implicit association test, uh, the one you got a bad score on, would you rather us show it to the whole school or shove your hand in a bucket of maggots? Something like that. Um, and a lot of people chose to shove their hand in the bucket of maggots or, or worms or something. I thought, oh, that, that, that would make a really good would you rather question. So I did that one and I did a bunch of uh, like Jonathan hates stuff about, you know, a family their dog dies and so they take the dog home and they eat it or a guy goes to a supermarket buys a chicken carcass has sex with it cooks it then eats it a lot a lot of that kind of really extreme stuff um i found it it was very eye-catching so a lot of people got interested in that and i think i made one video and within an hour or two it got like a million views and then within a few hours it got like four million views and then i kept making kind of replies to my own video um, on the hour, every hour for about two days, registered like a whole series of every single would you rather question I could think of based on moral psychology papers. And each video would get like a million views. And I think at one point, Jonathan Haidt got wind of it and posted about it on his Twitter and then followed me. So I still have that mutual. Um, so that, that, that was my big breakout, at least. Yeah, that... <laughs> That sounds amazing. Um, we, I have two questions. One, do you have any sense of like who your followers are? Like what are their demographics? So TikTok gives me some data on that. I know, for example, that something like 40% of my followers are American, maybe 20% of Canadian, 10% UK, the rest from elsewhere, basically. Um, in terms of age range, I'd have to give a guess of about somewhere between 18 and 19, definitely on the older end of TikTok consumers. Um, in terms of genders, they give you like a gender breakdown. I'm not actually sure how they come up with it. It used to be 60, 40 women. Now it's about 55, 45 women. Um, yeah, that, that, that's about all I know. Yeah. Um, and my other question was, how much time do you spend on TikTok a day on average? Not a lot. Um, I, I, I talk to other creators. I'm, I'm friends with a lot of some, some of the big people on kind of psych TikTok and stuff. And, and it sounds like I spend a ton of time on TikTok, but really I, I open up my app. It takes me about five minutes to record my video for the day um, because videos are usually about one minute long. So it takes me about two takes uh, to record. Um, and usually it's an idea that I just thought about while I was driving or something and, and I'll just post it. Um, so I'm on for about five minutes to post my videos and I spend maybe an extra 20 minutes scrolling through, looking at what my mutuals are doing. Um, looking at, I get a lot of people tagging me or, or sending me Instagram DMs and I, and I work through those all told maybe about half an hour, 45 minutes a day. Yeah, that's not much. Um... Yeah, no, no. Uh, but, but that's because I set pretty strict, um, screen time limits on my phone. Uh, cause there's, there certainly was a period maybe like a year ago where I'd just be on it for hours a day and it, it just wasn't sustainable. I'd rather like just set a scrim time limit and, and call it a day. That sounds smart. I'm, I'm just curious what it was when that video broke up and uh, blew up, sorry. And, and you got a million views and then that ballooned to 4 million views. What is like, what's going on? Like, are you getting a deluge of notifications and comments? I, I just don't really know how Twitter, TikTok works. Like, do people comment on videos? 
or are you able to sort of just that, that can sort of happen and you you can kind of ignore it and there's not like like notifications coming in constantly to your phone and stuff you can theoretically ignore it. Um, I find it difficult to when a video is blowing up. Um, the sort of interactions you get when you post a video, you can get likes, and those are usually reported in aggregate form. So every time I refresh, it might say 20,000 people liked your video in the last hour or something like that. Um, and then you also see every single individual comment um, as it goes through in like, a, in like a big feed in this separate pane. And then you also see people um, on TikTok can make things called stitches or duets. So a stitch is where essentially they play the first five or so seconds of your video and then it cuts to them doing whatever they want to do. Um, or a duet is where they respond to your video while you're in some other pane right beside them uh, and, and they kind of go through the whole thing. And so you get notifications of that as well. And so when a video blows up like that, you know, I, I'm refreshing every five seconds and I'm just seeing streams of comments coming in and I simply can't keep up. Um, and it's and it's a bit of a challenge to, to, to moderate things, especially because a lot of the topics I touch on are pretty... Uh, spicy or, or controversial. So both those formats are very familiar, I think, to me and probably to most people because we see them on like Instagram and Facebook. And like there's, did you see the meme that like it was a few weeks ago and somebody was just saying, no, I don't use TikTok. I wait for a week and then I see them, <laughs> I see them on Instagram <laughs> like an adult. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it happens a lot. I've, I can't tell you how many times um, my own videos have been have been stolen and then I'll see my friends send me something of them on Instagram. There's a, there's a YouTube channel I know that takes a lot of my videos and posts them on YouTube as shorts. Uh, mm. and, and so I see those pop oh, wow. up and it, it, it's extra frustrating when they get more views than uh, the original one did. Um, but well, yeah, uh, they, they, there's that. definitely a transfer. You, you would consider that stealing, though? Like, I mean, I'm sure they're not claiming that it's theirs, are they? Oh, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll just, like, download it and post it and say, I came up with them with a dilemma or something like that. And it'll be it'll be some, like, random YouTube channel called, like, Psychology Facts or something. Um, and that's what they'll do. Wow. Imagine so. being so famous that people are, like, stealing your work and claiming that it's theirs. <laughs> It's um, it's the ultimate compliment. So, yeah. I, so I remember when you, this sort of blew up for you, and I was following you on Twitter on the time uh, at the time, and I thought it was really interesting. And I remember you sort of like kept kind of asking, "Hey, like, can I use this data? <laughs> can I use this data like uh, in a science paper and stuff like that?" So I'm I'm curious now because you mentioned before that you are starting to, but it sounds like you're recruiting people through TikTok. Are you? Have you gotten to the point of actually using the poll data at all in in your sort of scientific journal publications? I would I would really like to use the poll data. There's a couple issues with using TikTok polls that I have to work through. I'm not sure if it is workable in the first place. One of the first things is that TikTok only lets you have one poll per video, and the poll can only have two options, and you are limited. Um, in the amount of information you can put on a poll. Imagine if you're doing a poll on Twitter, they might have a character limit for the poll. So you're limited in that way. Um, there's been issues with not everyone necessarily sees all the polls depending on the devices they have. Um, and so that might be a, a pretty important bias. If you have the newest iPhone, you're going to be different from someone with an old iPhone um, who can't see the polls. Um, and getting data from TikTok can be... It can be a little bit hard because they don't like scraping. And the last thing is when you're presenting polls, most of the time, what you don't want to do is 
ask people a question and record the proportions of people who pick option A or option B, you usually mm -hmm. want to ask them a question and ask a different group of people a different question and then see if those proportions shift. But because it's all posted on TikTok, anyone could see both videos. So you can't really guarantee that you're doing either between subjects and you can't guarantee that you're doing within subjects in the right temporal order or, or anything like that. Um, so there's a lot of challenges with doing just the straight up poll data. Now, one thing I have used the TikTok comments, I, I've used TikTok comments for qualitative data in the sense of like, I'll get comments and, and, I'll, and I'll use those. And, and that's a lot easier because I'm asking people, hey, what's your experience with XYZ? And they'll put it down and I find that useful. But most of what I've been doing is I'll use it as a recruitment tool. And I've done it on behalf of a couple other psychologists before. They've just said, hey, I have a study. Can you just post it and get some people? Um, and then for my own stuff, I'm specifically interested in some pretty rare consumer behaviors where it's hard to find just a random person on the street who's done it. And so TikTok is a nice way to reach a niche audience. And so I'll post that and say, hey, here's a Google form. Um, if you're interested in chatting with me about this, sign up for it. And I've done a series of qualitative interviews uh, based on participants recruited off of TikTok. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, are you doing any like quantitative surveys that uh, you're recruiting for through TikTok? I intend to do a quantitative survey uh, soon. I have to do the ethics for it. Um, so, so far, only qualitative. And have you been offering people compensation for participating or is it all voluntary? It's all voluntary. Most people uh, want to do it. I'm actually not sure if that's a bias. Um, wh what I've been doing is, you know, when I posted for my qualitative study, I think within a couple of hours, I got like 100 or so signups that I can't possibly go through. And a couple of people are like, oh, I've always wanted to meet you because I really like your videos. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I should be talking to you. Um, you seem like the wrong <laughs> sort of person to, to, to get honest data from because it seems like you want to help me out, um, which is a little bit weird because I, I feel like we don't necessarily always have that issue with like MTurk participants or prolific participants, people who just are in it kind of to get money. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of some of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always going to be bias in one direction or another. So, you know, yeah. you're biased on people who are volunteering, but other people, it's biased on people who are trying to make money in a certain way. And it's like, yeah, yeah, win. yeah. So, no, I don't offer compensation. And part of that's just because uh, I don't have the money to offer compensation. Um, I'm sure if I got money, I could get to. even more people. And I don't need to. Yeah. No. So, you mentioned you study uh, some kind of rare varieties of consumer behavior. Um, we probably should have done this at the start of the pod, but do you want to talk to us a little bit about your research and what you're interested in and, and why? Um, you're a second year, so I don't expect you to have uncovered, you know, world-changing world findings yet, but then I wouldn't put it past you. Oh, I, I, I have, so. Um, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, uh, so, so I'm, a, I'm a consumer behavior researcher, but um, I mean, the reason I did consumer behavior is because uh, since I was a kid, I've always wanted to do psychology studies. I, I, I did like my first psychology studies when I was in like grade nine, giving people like power bands and placebo bands to test stuff. So I was always super into psychology, um, but I went to business school. And so when you're at business school, you think of uh, business applications of some of the things that you're interested in. So I, I did marketing, but what I've mostly been interested in is pro-social behavior and anti-social behavior. Uh, so why do we do good things? Why do we do bad things? And even more interestingly, why do we do good things for bad reasons and bad things for good reasons? Um, so 
my primary area of research right now, which I just got a, a competitive paper accepted to one of our big conferences, um, is consumer aggression. Um, and specifically, I'm interested in how status seeking can motivate consumer aggression against brands. So you've seen, you've, you've probably seen lots of stuff about status seeking aggression in interpersonal uh, conflicts. So I know uh, Justin Tosi and Brandon Warmke, they got a lot of attention with their book on moral grandstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we certainly see people virtue signaling and attacking others to look good, um, but that hasn't really been done in the consumer brand context. Uh, when you read a lot of consumer aggression papers about why people go after companies, it's usually because the company has failed to meet some service or product obligation. Maybe they sold you a faulty product or the company has done something sufficiently bad that you think it's worth attacking them over. Um, and so kind of altruistic, kind of fixing a broken product or retributive attacking people who've done wrong things are usually what's considered the modal types of consumer regression. But I found a bunch of evidence that, you know, people can also attack brands for status reasons, just as they attack people for status reasons. Um, so that that's one of the topics that I'm looking at. The, the other one I can't really talk about because I don't have anything published on it yet. Um, but for the first one, what I've done is a lot of lab studies where I look at, you know, relations between status-seeking personalities and willingness to behave aggressively towards brands, as well as some Twitter data. Um, and usually what I'll do is I'll, I, I kind of chase down um, really high-profile uh, instances of brand cancellations on Twitter. And the one I've been most fond of is when Burger King about a year ago said, women belong in the kitchen. Um, Burger King UK just made this tweet where they said women belong in the kitchen. And I think within a couple hours, it had hundreds of thousands of likes. And uh, right underneath that tweet, they said, if they want to, of course, that's why we're investing $10 million in promoting women in uh, the burger field or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll look at those cases and I'll look at people's past uh, behavior and find that, you know, when people are socially rewarded for behaving aggressively, they're more likely to do it against a brand as well. Um, which is kind of building on some of uh, like William Brady's work, um, looking at uh, how people learn to behave aggressively for so- social status reasons. Yeah, that's interesting. What other examples? I'm trying to think of other examples of this. Uh, definitely. There's... So I, I, an example I'm not allowed to include in my papers, my advisor said it was probably too controversial, um, was after Harvey Weinstein uh, after his Me Too allegations, mm. he posted an apology letter. And in the apology letter, you know, he does the whole thing of like, I was raised in a different time. I didn't know you weren't supposed to treat women like that. But he also said, I've decided to channel my aggression into attacking the NRA. Um, I'm going to give the president of the NRA a great retirement party, and maybe I'll go attack the, the GOP next. And so this is a case of, you know, this guy has been credibly accused of sexual assault. And he's saying, listen, I'm really sorry about that. But if you let me go, I'm going to go attack uh, the NRA, who presumably a lot of liberal leaning people hate. Um, so that, 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 that's another more high-profile instance of that. Propitiation. But when a regular consumer is trying to, like in your parlance, attack Burger King, is that that's just like a mean comment on social media? or like Because they're not sort of like throwing Molotov cocktails at Burger King when they drive past, right? Or like, I guess they could just be sort of, boycotting it but that's not very powerful unless you're sort of broadcasting that on social media and stuff yeah so any individual consumer um you know saying mean things online isn't going to do a lot but we know that for example word of mouth is pretty powerful 
Um, if you look at, you know, people's responses to Chick-fil-A, I'm not, I'm not sure how controversial mm-hmm. that is in, in America, but certainly we have at least one branch in Toronto where it became really uh, wrong to go to Chick-fil-A because they had these anti-gay uh, policies on the books. Um, so certainly consumers in aggregate, if a lot of people are saying, I really dislike this, I really dislike this company, that can certainly damage the the brand's prospects. So you're right that any individual probably isn't going to have a big impact. But when you have a ton of people doing that in unison, um, and I'm finding that large amounts of people can be influenced by status, um, you can end up, those effects add up to really consequential things for the brand. And sorry, just to clarify, is this like, you're not just, are you just studying reactions on social media or is it like broader studies that are, you know, um, addressing like offline behaviors as well? Yeah. So I, I've done a couple of like lab experiments that, you know, they don't measure the real offline behaviors, but certainly willingness to engage in certain offline behaviors. Like, would you be willing to go vandalize this company? Would you be willing to engage in a personal boycott of this company? And I find similar relations between status-seeking personalities and willingness to do that, even in cases where the brand hasn't really done anything super wrong. Mm-hmm. Or like if you, if this company undercharged you, would you be honest about it or something? Because I think like a lot of people will yeah. sort of bring out the, oh, but it's it's Walmart and they're evil. So like, who cares? Well, the, the, the nice thing is I, I have a lot of studies where I get people to just admit that, um, you know, I would lie to get this company in trouble because I dislike mm-hmm. them. Um, which is not the sort of thing people usually admit in a lot of studies. Usually you'd worry about social desirability bias. Um, there's a bit of a lower bound, but I, a lot of people just say, yeah, no, I'll, I'll lie because I dislike this company. So I'll invent something to get them in trouble. Yeah. So I, it's kind of related, but these companies seem, um, hypersensitive to this, especially social media criticism these days. Like I've been like almost I talk to a lot of people that have a lot of trouble with airlines because I'm in these Australians in America groups and they're constantly like having problems trying to get home and get back and stuff like that. And one thing you hear everybody say these days is like, don't call them. Like if you're angry at United, don't call them, tweet at them because you will get a response far quicker if you're doing this in public. Um, so yeah, but, like, like do I, you get an actual response or is it just like reach out to our customer care? No, that's like- yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that's kind of what it is. But they do take it more seriously, I guess, because you've outed yourself as somebody who is going to attack them publicly rather than sit on hold for three hours, uh, like Possibly a patient or sheep. Yeah. It's yeah, like I I kind of believe in the advice. Like it seems to ring true to me in my personal experience. Um, yeah, and so, I, yeah. I guess like those companies, they're probably just worried about like the the moral outrage contagion, right? Because because it might be that you know a couple people being upset online isn't that big a deal, but if their friends start getting upset on their behalf and you start a movement, that's really really bad for you. Yeah, totally. So, what do you are you going to be like employed at one of these companies trying to help them like <laughs> as an expert in like? Uh, handling or understanding the psychology of the aggrieved consumers or uh, are you are you headed into academia do you think i'd much rather be a professor that that's definitely uh the, the number one goal i mean uh hopefully i get a job if i don't certainly i could be in one of those companies and i'll just tell nice stories to all the executives about how all their angry consumers are just virtue signalers and not to listen to them. Um, I'm not sure how effective that would be as a company strategy. Uh, I'm, not, I, I'm still working out the practical implications of this, but certainly it's interesting from like a, a theoretical standpoint, at least. 
Yeah, well, it's a sorry, Rachel. It's an interesting empirical question: uh, the effectiveness of boycotts, which actually just came up uh, in a different topic that we were planning to discuss this week. Yeah, that's a good segue. I think we should uh, take advantage of that. Yeah. So um, one of the topics I wanted to talk about was um, SBSB, which I know you're not really a part of because uh, you're not a social psych person, but a lot of our listeners are. Um, well, it's like so, the biggest con- the biggest conference in your field, the one that sort of everybody goes to and everybody wants to be. The Association for Consumer Research, that's really the big one. That and maybe um, Society for Consumer Psychology, but ACR uh, is the big one. So just imagine this is our ACR. Yeah. Right, <laughs> so, gotcha. Uh, our annual conference was planned for uh, Atlanta, and in Georgia. And um, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, there was like abortion laws that came into effect in Georgia that were very strict. I haven't like looked into what they are specifically, but um, that led to, I, I'm not really, we're a little fuzzy on the details here and like what actually happened. Um, but people were kind of talking about uh, not having the conference there anymore because of these laws. And then at some point, an official survey came from SBSB, basically asking all the members, would you still be willing to go there? Um, what are some things that are affecting your decision? And like, what would the cost have to be? Like, they're sort of like asking, like, if we wanted to move it to a different location, would that affect your decision to go? Um, things like that. And then they ultimately decided not to move it because of what people said in response to the survey. Um, but yeah, I think like there's sort of like two threads. It seems like, like one of them was we're going to boycott Georgia because they have bad laws. And the other was we're worried that there's women or people with uteruses um, who are going to be attending the conference and who will be put at like physical risk by, uh, you know, us, us holding it here. It's like going to be dangerous to them. So I think, uh, I don't know how much we have to say about the second thing. Um, I have thoughts on it, but I guess like more interested in hearing your thoughts about the the boycotting aspect of it, um, whether it would actually be, a successful thing to do or like, what would you, I guess, like, what's your take? Well, so uh, when, when you're on the level of like a, like a state, you know, an individual uh, organization boycotting you probably wouldn't do much, but I do think that, you know, in, in the event that uh, for example, Florida has had conflicts with Disney. If, if a, if a big employer like Disney starts threatening to, to pull out or to move resources elsewhere, that can certainly have an effect. So if you have organizations like SPSB in concert with a bunch of other organizations, I can imagine that actually putting a lot of legitimate pressure on the state to, I'm, I'm not sure how much they would do something, but, but certainly would put some degree of pressure on the state. It, it would be meaningful and it would be felt um, because a lot of states rely on lots of people coming in and, and buying stuff um, and doing stuff there. So, so I, I, I don't know if I could say that like the SPSB boycott would do anything, but certainly, hopefully, many organizations could, and then you could see some change. Yeah, so I just think you hate getting these emails, Rachel. Like, <laughs> you, you, know, you just have a knee-jerk reaction no, to I, any politically changed email. I, I hate the fact that SBSB is supposed to be an academic organization. 
And it really seems like their main focus, like every time I hear from them, it's about how they're being an activist Mm. and like, like, I'm sorry, it's not. So when it comes to the boycotting thread, like Mm. that's not what we should be engaged in. Like, I don't care if your personal politics are that. I I mean, I, you know, we've, we've had an episode on abortion. We're Mm. both very pro-choice and like Mm. against these laws, but Mm. that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be part of the decision of whether we hold a conference somewhere or not. Like this is a scientific conference. I, I'm really curious. Um, would you have the same feeling about, for example, if a, a climate scientist uh, organization refused to go to a state that, you know, had some negative climate policies just enacted? Is it the fact that the abortion issue to you seems disconnected from the mission of SPSP or or is it just in general scientific organizations shouldn't be political because I can imagine there's lots that would have ties to political issues yeah I mean I think that's a good question uh I haven't really thought about it but I think that it's I I wouldn't I think in your example like even if it was a climate related thing I don't think that it should be, yeah, I I don't think that it should be affecting their decision to have the conference in that state or not. Um, There's a lot of like reasons that people for, for holding a conference in a particular location, and it could be one of them, I guess, is like, how much does this align with our mission? But I don't see why it would be like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the so the, the initial thread of it might be upsetting for some people to travel to Georgia uh, in the, like, not, not that anybody's going to be like planning to have an abortion while they're at SPSP, but like the idea of safety is this fully psychological concept, right? No, it's like, I don't think that I, I'm just going to interrupt you, um, <laughs> but I don't think that's awesome. actually... Uh, (laughs) i i think that might be part of what people are thinking but i don't think that's the main thing i think the main thing is there's a risk of someone being pregnant and then like a lot of things that people are talking about is needing a miscarriage which can happen like needing like having a miscarriage but then it turning into like a medical emergency Mm because a lot of times you can like it can cause hemorrhaging or like, you know, um, yeah, just like, uh, complications, not a doctor. Um, and then you need to take medication or to have like a surgical procedure to have a fetus removed. And those are actually currently outlawed. Like it, it depends on the state, but they're, it's sort of complicated. And a lot of doctors are afraid to perform medical procedures that are necessary for miscarriage because they look the same on paper as they would for an abortion. Mm. And so I think that's where the, like, there is a legitimate like safety concern potentially. Um, So you seem to be making a pretty good argument (laughs) for this. I mean, there's a safety, but like, what are the chances of that happening? There's also a safety concern of holding it somewhere where people need to drive to or fly to, and they might get into an accident and they might get, you know, bitten by a shark on the way. Like there's a bunch of, um, sort of, I don't know, I was just, uh, <laughs> uh, 
Um, but there's a bunch of like implausible risks that like the chances, you know, of, of that happening in that particular time and in that particular way seem pretty slim to me. Yeah. And I don't know if that should be like a me, like, you know, a reason to move the conference. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't they say, well, you know, we, conferences are technically people still have to travel to conferences, you know, because we want to have an in-person conference and that's how they work, uh, but we don't have to have it in Atlanta, right? So the the risks associating, associated with flying and driving are unavoidable. However, if, you know, if you're right and there are real sort of medical emergencies that could come up that some somebody would be uh, at greater risk in Georgia uh, following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, is, and it's within our power to move it. You know, why put that person at risk if we don't, if we don't have to? Um, I, just because there's other costs associated with moving it. I mean, they mm. outlined the costs for like uh, hundreds of, I, I don't actually know what it was, but mm. a lot of money um, involved in, you know, because they made the commitment to a venue and, and mm. all this stuff. So I think that's mm. part of it, um, that it's like, it has the potential to benefit in the case, in the very small chance of like something happening, but also. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shall we move on to our next topic? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, so we wanted to talk to you, Ethan, about uh, this incident that happened at your university, which I also was um, very interested by when I saw you post about it on Twitter. Um, yeah, I think it it has some interesting layers that I'd like to unpack. So tell us about um, what happened with the hijabi kiss poster sure so my university um you know as as most universities do during pride month is they posted a poster for pride um and my university is really big into doing you know uh diversifying the sort of promotional materials they have and so as part of their pride poster they had two hijabi women kissing the implication being that they're Muslim, um, if they're wearing the hijab. And when they posted that, uh, I think it was originally on Instagram, uh, they got a ton of really negative comments from the local community, um, specifically the local Muslim community. And at one point, someone started, I think it was a change.org petition that got something like 33,000 signatures saying, we need to take this poster down because to the hijabi women kissing is against uh, whatever religious law there is in Islam about lesbian couples, something like that. Um, and the university ended up taking it down and they gave this kind of weird apology saying, we listen to the community, we're learning, um, you know, there's intersectional concerns to be had here. And the aftermath of that was really, really weird because on the one hand, you had lots of people who had a pretty principled stance of no you know if it's pride month you can post whatever you want for pride month and it's okay to show the diversity of people who might be gay um and then other people who were kind of defending you know the religious right of muslims to not feel as though their religion was being misrepresented and it's important to note that this is not necessarily a mainstream muslim opinion i'm sure there's many many who don't have an issue with anything like this in fact a lot of the news articles about it 
contacted uh, openly out gay Muslim people to talk about their own experiences navigating their sexuality within their faith. Um, and I remember I, I just watched that in real time as it happened. I was watching the subreddits and I was watching moderators nuke like every uh, every comment thread and then talking about it within um, like uh, society for grad student spaces and things like that. And there were a lot of people who I, I would have expected that they would have been very stridently supportive of LGBT rights in this instance, who seem very willing to kind of turn over and say, well, you know, in this case, it's different. Um, I just found it to be a really weird instant overall. And it's not the sort of thing you expect to happen at your university. I, I was shocked to see that Western was in the news for this. Yeah. Did you make any uh, TikTok polls about it? I did not. It, honestly, the the I have I have a rule. I have a rule which is that I will post extremely controversial uh, dilemmas, but I will never post ones that are controversial in a way that would get my university contacted um, to remove me from my position. Uh, so certainly, people seem very comfortable talking about you know murder, incest, all that kind of stuff. But if you talk about something a little less extreme, but that hits on the right blend of issues. Uh, there starts to become a real risk there. And so I just, I decided it was better for me to not post about that. Yeah. So what do you think, what, what do you think would have been the reaction if it was um, uh, the poster did not depict these women? Because the poster had a lot of different, like it was, it was just trying to show, I think like the artist was literally just trying to show inclusiveness of the lgbt community but also racial and ethnic diversity at the same time yeah and that that ended up just manifesting as oh let's put women in here like it's intersectional look i've got i've got uh many kinds of diversity going on it's awesome um so it was just sort of these two heads at sort of the bottom of this poster where there was like i guess five or six different characters in this image right so let's say like they weren't in hijabs and it was just two women kissing um, and I don't know, some Christian group, 30,000 Christians in the local community signed a survey. Uh, what do you think would have happened from the, these, would this, would this, do you think the school would have taken it down? I think the school would not have taken it down. They probably, probably would have been celebrated for not taking it down. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I, I just think the reaction would have been very, very different. Now, to be fair, one of the arguments that I saw a lot online about this was, you know, maybe saying two women kissing and then Christian groups, uh, you know, objecting, that's not necessarily um, analogous. The, the hmm. proper analogy would be, what if they showed two nuns kissing? And nuns hmm. are this, you know, religious order that have to take about celibacy. And so to show them engaging in kind of like a romantic or sexual type of relationship with anybody really that would be you know out of the question it's probably not good to misrepresent a religion like that um i don't, I don't think nuns are like quite i think that's too high but like if they were wearing like uh like necklaces with a cr big cross sure. on them like i think because because nuns are sort of like you know like the at the hierarchy like they're of christian officials whatever and so that would like the equivalent of that would be like a uh, imam, like a uh, you know a Muslim prayer leader or something. But yeah, so yeah. But anyway, whatever the analogy is, like the appropriate one. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> Where were you going? With no, that? It, it's fine. No, I I, I think yeah, I, I'm not sure how fond I am of the non analogy. I just think 
you know, if you took it seriously, it'd be weird to say that the hundreds of millions of women who are in hijabs are suddenly held to the standards of nuns in, in, in that sense. But I also think that, you know, there's also the question of consensus um, within the religious communities. I, I don't think there's any, like, Christian groups that really dispute whether or not nuns should be celibate, whereas the idea as to whether or not hijabis can have sexual relationships with other people um, of all genders, that, that, that seems pretty in dispute, at least, at least in Canada. Mm. Yeah. So, the, I mean, well, I would just say, I think the university would have been fine if they were nuns. And I think even if they put the poster out and they were nuns and it got complaints from religious Christians, I don't think the university would have taken it down. And I think that's because when people in universities like are activists and they are sort of inculcated in the, the, these the ideas about the world and all moral issues boiling down to who's powerful and who's who's marginalized then they have a clear sort of villain in their mind when they say i want to fight homophobia they want to fight the homophobia of the most the most powerful group that it's fine to attack right and i think people get very very uh, flustered and confused when it becomes clear that oh marginal somebody who is part of a marginalized group and therefore kind of untouchable in the new rules is also homophobic and people get very uncomfortable talking about homophobia in that kind of situation but i i think it's a serious issue like i have known a lot of muslim people in my life and uh, like i'm not going to say like all of them are homophobic but i i i've been told by muslim people I was actually working at a restaurant once uh, and there were some gay guys working there. Muslim guy turned to me at one point, pointed to these gay guys that were working there. And he said, you know, in my country. And then he just slid his finger across the throat, like basically saying we, we would just kill these guys. Right. So like the point I'm trying to make is that like homophobia is not just limited to powerful white men in Western countries. And I would say, like, for the most part, homophobia is much, much lower in powerful white men in Western countries. The people that all these DEI experts are, like, so good at standing up to. Uh, homophobia is, like, very, very likely a much more serious problem in the Muslim world and the Hindu world. And, uh, like, I, I don't know, also but I would, among, I would like, assume... Black people. Yeah, I would assume, yeah, non-Western countries and Africa and what have you. And and the just this like just this like completely sanitized version of standing up against homophobia, where it's like, well, no, like we, we only want to stand up against homophobia in this very constrained way where we can't be criticized because we are just going after this this safe set of villains that we've sort of set aside as the like powerful like powerful groups in our society, but then really like just backing off in such a cowardly fashion when you're sort of confronted with what I would say is a much more serious version of homophobia, which is like Muslims saying, how, like, how dare you show like women in a hijab? Like this is totally against our religion. Uh, so like, we do not accept, we do not accept this. We do not accept people that are part of our community, like two women that are part of our community kissing um, yeah, I think it just shows the, like a complete lack of moral courage and just the, like, just how like 
pathetic this worldview is and how like kind of useless it is for the actual world that we live in. Like it's, it can get you a job like as a DEI expert to like learn all this language and just try to like pretend that you're like, there's one kind of villain in the world that you're, you're constantly trying to like fight against uh, and then just like run away anytime gets something gets more complex or there's a conflict between marginalized groups. But like this, this worldview is just, it falls apart in the face of the messiness of reality. And I thought this incident was just such a perfect embodiment of this. Yeah. I, I, I thought to myself that I was very glad that this didn't happen in like 2006. I feel like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens would have had a field day with it um, when they were in their new atheist days. Um, but the, the, the other, the other thing about the situation was that um, I, I feel like this is maybe a little bit of a challenge to Rachel, your position about, you know, the, the politicization of some scientific organizations, because this is a case where whatever action the university took would have been political in some sense, right? If, if they take it down, they're, they're taking a stance. If they keep it up, they're also taking a stance, just given how much attention there was around it. It, it feels like it's really hard to get around whether or not the university should have affirmative values in this case, because they had to make a choice. There wasn't a neutral option. So was it the, like, who, who was the person who was actually, uh, in, not person, but like what, who put up the poster? Was it like a student group within the university or was it like the, no, it was, it was the university. Yeah. I, I think it was probably like their equity and inclusion department, something like that. Um, probably through the social media team, but it was, it was the university. It wasn't some student group doing it. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I don't really know what my position on this is because I mean, I do think that universities should be involved in creating inclusive spaces for their students. And like, to, that is going to sometimes be political. Um, and I think there's a difference between doing something like this versus you know, like sending out the Kyle Rittenhouse email, which is not really about it. You know, it's like just a reaction to a political thing that's happening in the world. Um, so, yeah, I don't think, I mean, I think they, they shouldn't have created the poster like that to begin with because they're just asking for trouble and like probably the, easier better thing to do would be just not to have uh muslim women in hijabs on the poster like there's also dozens of other groups that were not represented on the poster you don't have to have like every single like representation of everyone um but then also like they did do that and so i don't know i think leaving it up is less of a political statement than taking it down mm. um yeah, well, t- taking it down is just kind of a, the the coward's way out, right? You kind you kind of picked a side already. You should stick to it. But, but yeah, yeah. Another interesting part of this is that, like, the people, the only people upset that it was taken down is like, uh, like in this chat, it seems. <laughs> like, was there <laughs> with it was the LGBT because like like this is another thing is like the LGBT community, uh, like it is kind of complicit in this, like it, in the sense that like, I don't get the sense that they themselves were particularly upset at it being taken down, even though. So I, 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 I did see some people who were upset about it, but they were upset in a much quieter way than I think they otherwise would have been. You know, I, I made a post about this on Twitter and a couple 
Western profs like liked it and stuff, but I didn't see them make posts of their own in the same way that they might otherwise. Um, yeah, it, it was really weird. Uh, the, the, there was this undercurrent because I, you know, I would DM with people who were at Western or, or around there and they'd have these really, really strong views on it and they just wouldn't kind of express it. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, I feel like the only people who would potentially care about it not being taken down or like would want to see it are Muslim lesbians mm-hmm. and like, or maybe <laughs> Muslim gay men. Cause you know, similar, yeah. but I feel like even Muslim lesbians would be like, mm. yeah, like I don't need, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'd be interested in seeing like what they think about it, but like, I feel like maybe they would not feel strongly about being represented on a poster because it is also potentially hurtful and disrespectful to people in their religion who they care about. And so I don't know. It's interesting. Oof, really? Because I mean, I, I was kind of thinking, doesn't doesn't this response sort of prove that, uh, like, that poster was meaningful? Like, in a way that it, it just would have been this like bland by the numbers. Um, here we're putting this up because it's Pride Month and yada yada yada. We're, like everybody else, we we support. LGBT rights and stuff like that. This completely like uninteresting, almost conformist uh, message. But you know the fact that it it really did upset that community to see two women in a hijab kissing, sort of made the poster meaningful in a way, and and like showed me that like, well yeah that 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 is a community that like where this homophobia needs to be addressed and needs to be confronted. And yeah, like a poster is not going to do it, but like, it's like, I mean, if you're, if you are a lesbian and you're Muslim um, and I don't know what, what you, there must be some people who the end game is they want to be accepted uh, as a lesbian and and a Muslim. Right. And that, that can't really happen right now, it seems, if like the Muslim community is so strongly against the idea that you can be both and Western advocates like your allies are going to completely back down in the face of, um, to back down to that uh, sentiment in the Muslim community because they, you know, see the Muslim community as marginalized and have a sort of a confused moral compass that they think, oh, well, maybe like that homophobia is okay. Like, it's, like it's okay for them not to accept um, because, you know, Donald Trump b- banned them and, you know, they've been stigmatized, you know, for like other reasons. But like, I, th- I think, no, like if you care about LGBT rights, then you should probably be trying to take the fight to where that, you know, the homophobia is strongest, right? Otherwise, like... Yeah, there there was certainly, yeah, like in in the news articles and stuff that were about this, a lot of them, you know, they did reach out and they they would find like a a couple, um, you know, gay Muslim people to talk about their experiences. And a lot lot of them would say that, you know, they really appreciated that post because they struggled with their sexuality and their faith and how to kind of reconcile the two things. But it's hard to know how representative that was the, the one thing i'll note is that you know i i 
as much as I dislike Western doing that, I can also understand them being extremely conservative in, in the small C way with respect to handling this. Cause we also, um, I think it was last year. We also had you no know, pretty horrific hate crime that happened in London as well, where some, I think it was a driver just drove specifically into some Muslim family because they were Muslim. And so there's been lots of discussion, at least in this community about dealing with Islamophobia. Um, so, so I can understand the university kind of walking on eggshells with respect to this sort of issue. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think that there's any good answers here. I feel like I agree with what Paul was saying too. And I don't really, I just feel like it, like, like you were saying, like it really highlights where these intersectionality, like different identities are competing and like have conflicting interests. And we haven't really, figured out how to deal with that as a society and mm. yeah I, I mean we we kind of have but like it was like the french revolution and the idea of like you know like basic liberalism like you know you you can do what you want as long as you're not hurting anybody else like our societies have like thought about this kind of stuff for a long time i think we're just sort of getting very confused about it now because like people are like overthinking things than want to kind of abandon these sort of traditional liberal principles of like, Well, I mean, I don't know. It's not rights. like, like, what are you, but what are you suggesting? Like would it sounds like you're saying they should make, they should have made the poster just as they made it and then not taking it down because we need to fight against homophobia. Mm-hmm. But like, we also need to fight against Islamophobia. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it's a very complex policy. Like you're not allowed to drive your car through families, but you're allowed to be gay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like you got to pick one or the other. It's, it's a tough stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like I just, yeah, it doesn't seem that complex to me. Like, cause but if the, it's important for like, if it, if it were, I, I mean, I'm not an expert in Islam, but like, if it were an important tenet of Islam to be homophobic, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> put that way. It doesn't sound I feel like making an affirmative claim there would be. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like in, I mean, in Judaism, there's like clear and Christianity, you know, as a result, there's like clear passages about not having sex, men, not having sex with men. For lesbians, it's no one talks about lesbians. They don't exist. But like, you know, like, what, you can't. What are you supposed to do with that? Like, if that's a main tenet of someone's religion, then you can't be both accepting of gay people and accepting of that religion. And so, like, I think it is complicated. Like, you have to choose which one you care about more. And. Then yeah, you're getting yeah. into this complicated, like, well, parts of your religion are okay. The parts that are, you know, Western and uh, liberal and the other parts are not okay. And like, yeah. But I think like in a Western liberal society, like, you know, we don't put people in jail for being homophobic, but if they, if they harm a gay person as a result of their homophobia, then that's against the rules, right? Like you, you don't, you don't have to love it in your heart that, that women are kissing to live here, but it's the basic principle of like, you just not allowed to like 
hurt people or curtail other people's freedom. And as long as like these kissing hijabi women are not hurting anybody else, then what they're doing is fine. Right. But they are hurting people, right? Like they're, they're 33,000 were upset enough that they signed the petition. I I feel like that's the Mm -hmm. case where just people have different values and facts in their heads and you're never going to get a situation where everyone's happy. You, you have to have some positive affirmative stance here. Mm. And, and in this case, at, at least personally, I think the new atheists were generally right on this. You should just say, screw it, we're going to do it anyway, um, yeah. and kind of cast aside religious considerations. But that's a personal opinion as well, and, and I can only hope that enough people agree with me in the yeah. university. Yeah, I mean, we... We... Yeah, like it, it's getting complex, right? Because we are starting to, there's this big movement that considers like words to be violence and like hurt feelings to be like legitimate trauma and stuff like that. But like, I think it is a basic tenet of liberal society that like, oh, you're offended. What? Fine, whatever. Like you're, you're, if, if those women kissing aren't actually physically hurting anybody, but you just sort of don't like it for some reason, because your you know invisible friend told you it's bad or something like that, like we just sort of tell people, well, you know, get over it. But now, you know, there's all this there's all this stuff about like, well, I, you know, I don't like what Dave Chappelle said in his special because he said like trans woman's pussies like impossible pussy and that's violence against me and we now have to like ban dave Chappelle, and we now sort of treating like psychological harm like it's actual harm and i think legally and politically and morally it's actually a really important line and this case sort of uh, exemplifies why I think you might be able to say that some of these discussions have been maybe captured by elite interests um, in terms of the sorts of topics that end up getting discussed, um, as, as opposed to some of the more material concerns that people have. That That's a amazing. strange phrase. Elite. <laughs> it's a strange phrase. You know, it, it's I, it Where did you pick that up? Oh, you know, like I, like I said, it came to me in a dream. I just thought about it one day and I thought, <laughs> wow, that's a really good phrase. <laughs> Write a book. Yeah. No. So, um, yeah. Ethan is now running a podcast. Apparently, <laughs> and, <laughs> I was say we should hire you to write our segways because, uh, yeah, that was great. That was a good. That was great. You know. So, um, so why yeah, don't you tell like, us what you <laughs> explain a lead capture? Like, why? Why? What does this mean? What do you? What are we? What are we talking about? Sure. So I, I love the term elite capture because I, I think it's pretty related. At least some of the stuff that Paul was getting into. Um, there was a, a book that was originally published from an author, Olufemi Taiwo, um, and I'm hoping I'm not butchering that name. I use the, the Google pronunciation helper. Um, and it's a really cool book that just got published about, you know, kind of the modern identity politics movement. And I really enjoyed it, and I've been enjoying talking about it. And I think that was one of the things that um, got Paul to ask me to come on the podcast. Um, and, and basically what the book is about is it's about how yeah, a lot of conversations about identity-relevant issues have kind of taken a left turn away from topics that we would consider to be really relevant to the material interests of marginalized people and towards more the interests of very elite people um, who are probably sheltered from, from some of the issues that most marginalized people face. Um, and, and so just to give a quick description of the book, um, you know, it's not the sort of standard uh, I hate identity politics, you know, woke American teens are destroying America. It's not that sort of book. 
it, it's actually, I, I would argue, like a very pro-identity politics book. Um, Oli Family kind of starts off by talking about how, you know, the BLM 2020 protests were about really important material problems that were faced by Black communities. You know, a lot of people um, can point to credible statistics about disproportionate violence by the police or, or uh, drug-based incarceration programs. There's certainly a clear case for organizing around identity in some cases. Some groups really are discriminated or oppressed on the basis of identity. However, the sort of topics that get talked about are dictated by people who have power and privilege. And the challenge is that anybody who has power and privilege is going to use that power and privilege to structure conversations in a way that benefits themselves. And that's true of rich and powerful people. That's true of privileged people. It's also true of marginalized people who happen to also be rich and powerful. Um, so th this book kind of goes through why Olufemi thinks that so many of these conversations have been taken over by elite conversations. Um, specifically, the biggest problem he talks about is the fact that simply by virtue of being in the room where important decisions are made, you are very different from most people in your group. So if you're a Black person and you are a tenured professor at Harvard, your experiences are probably going to be very different from a poor single Black mother living in Detroit, simply by virtue of your station in life. And by virtue of having that station in life, your life has probably been different than other people. Um, you know, a lot of elite spaces, like getting to university, getting good academic jobs, or becoming a CEO, they're comprised of a bunch of different filtration systems that filter out people who don't have the power or privilege to succeed in those spaces. So if you think about it, who ends up becoming a tenured Harvard professor? Probably someone who had good enough SAT scores to get into a good undergraduate program, had good enough grades in the undergraduate program to get into a good graduate program, had enough support, funding, whatever, to have enough publications, to make it as a professor. And even before that, simply to get those SAT grades themselves, no one's born an automatic genius who walks into the SAT and writes it and passes. Uh, you probably have a lot of support structures that are helping you out. And so by virtue of making it through all those filter steps, you're probably really different from most marginalized people if you're a marginalized person in a position of power and privilege. And so what, what he talks about is how these elite spaces of very privileged, powerful people who also happen to have marginalized identities, they shape the conversation so that it revolves around their own personal concerns rather than you know, things that affect Black people, um, for example. So they So he'll talk about how People might shift the conversation away from, you know, how can we invest in Black communities and get them better education? How can we fix the problem of mass incarcerations? And we'll turn it into debates about whether or not we should center Black women in Skype calls among professors. Um, and our conversations get kind of biased in this way. So um, I think that's really interesting. And I agree with that. And that's this is something that I've brought up a lot in my department to, you know, friends that it's like, we all, after George Floyd, everyone was like, we have to do something. And then the main things that they were doing was like, we're going to work on a committee that's going to help people who want to go to grad school, get admitted to grad school. And it's like, okay, sh that's great to the extent that people of color are actually underrepresented, which I, who knows, um, you know, if that's true or to what extent, but, but like, even if that's, a cause that of concern like is that really 
the main, like, it seems like the main problem is that Black people are in really bad schools in, like, elementary school, even younger than that. They're not reading at grade level, then they can't go into college. And, like, the problem happens way earlier on. So, anyway, but, like, I brought up these problems, but one of the points of pushback that I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about this is, well, this is the area where we have influence. Like we are in a psychology department or marketing or whatever, and like we're PhD students, we can't affect uh, what happens in black communities and inner cities, but we can affect how uh, prepared undergrads are for getting to grad school. So we're just gonna, you know, stay in our lane and do what we can. What are your thoughts about that? So number one, that's totally true. And I think Olufemi would also agree with that. So the idea that, you know, it might be the case that female CEOs are very privileged relative to the average woman, that doesn't mean that they don't experience sexism as well. And we should work to address those things. So in, in your case about building pipelines, you know, it might be that the sort of people who make it to undergraduate are going to be relatively privileged, um, but they might still face some discrimination on the basis of their identity. So it's important to kind of work that out. However, I think it still biases the sort of conversations that we have. Um, so, you know, above, above and beyond mere like funding considerations, um, the way that we talk about issues uh, should probably change. But also, I think there's a maybe a, a, a bit of a myth. Um, and I, I see this certainly a lot in, in business schools. This is the sort of topic that gets brought up a lot. The idea that um, you, know, you can kind of have it all. You can increase the diversity of your departments and things like that. And that'll actually make your department better. Um, you won't lose anything out by doing that. Um, and I think it's important to note that sometimes diversi diversifying your departments or things like that in a material way is going to have some upfront costs that you actually have to eat. Um, so for example, if you're a department and you want to diversify, you probably might not want to only hire from Yale or Harvard, right? You, you might want to you know, kind of expand your range and you might end up hiring applicants from schools that have less of a pedigree because that's simply where more marginalized people are going to be ending up. Um, there's certainly lots of instances where, you know, universities will say that they're diversifying and then they'll show an incoming Harvard class and it's, you know, it's a very diverse on paper Harvard class, but they're the sort of people who got into Harvard. I, I think it's important to point out that maybe you should just bite the bullet and hire people from universities that have less resources. And that's a, yeah. I, I, I think I think it's a tough thing to manage because like Olufemi talks about a lot, he, he's very much a Marxist. Um, and he would say, well, it, it's hard to say to any individual actor, you should do X, Y, Z. He's saying the structure is set up so that the incentives point towards doing the wrong things and we should change the incentives. But it's a little hard to operationalize exactly how to do that um, beyond just saying, well, everyone should act good instantly. Um, it's it, it just hard to manage those issues. Yeah. And I, I just add in like my response to the question that I raised would also be like, sure, it's true that um, maybe like your area of influence seems to be more in the in your company or, you know, grad school or whatever. But really, like, 
I still think that it would be more impactful for you to take whatever time you're putting into like these endless committees on how to improve things within the department. And instead, like just go tutor someone or, you know, go volunteer to like mentor someone who's uh, having trouble um, earlier on. Or, you know, go work for a few hours and then donate the money to someone who can use it more effectively than you can. So it's just like, um, I think people are artificially constraining themselves to the issues that really like are the ones that they're most familiar with um, and that they're not very being very effective in that way. Yeah, that, that's important too, right? Because, you know, helping out yourself by serving on the committee feels like you're doing something, whereas sending money to help underprivileged youth learn something better, that's pretty bloodless in the sense that you're just kind of sending money along and it doesn't feel like you're doing as much. And it also doesn't look like you're doing as much because unless you publicize the donation, then uh, no one really knows. Curious if he, in the book, he kind of talks about like the psychology of elite capture, right? Because I I think like a lot of the time I see, well, you know, this is all my perception and I'm, I'm curious if he has a take on this, but like you see people who really have pretty good lives and like a lot of privilege, but have just been sort of convinced to see themselves as perpet- perpetual victims and like, the example that I always think back to is like after George Floyd, there was all these hashtags on Twitter and something like that. And there were, this was either under the hashtag black in the Academy or black in neuro. But I remember seeing this, this sort of, I, I don't know, maybe a grad student or maybe a professor sort of like make this tweet about how like part of being black in the Academy is that you have to see your, see your people referred to as blacks in like academic writing. Right. And like this, this is, you know, being listed as like just part of what black people in academia go through. Right. So like, and there's, I think there's two sort of psychological sides of this for me. So one of it, one is like, okay, this person, I think if that's like the thing that you can think of, of like why it's hard for you to be black in academia, if that's your example, um, like you're doing okay. Like that you don't, it seems like your life's going pretty well. Like if that's, if that's your major obstacle, just reading like blacks in a paper, because like we, you would also read whites, you would also read Asians, yada, yada, yada. Secondly, like from, from my perspective and being like brutally honest, when I see that, uh, I like, I can't help but like roll my eyes and, and, and I can't like, you know, this person who like I am, for, I'm against injustice, I'm for justice, yada, yada, yada. But I see this and I can't help but think, well, that's not a, that's not a very, compared to other social problems, this is not something I really care about or have much sympathy for. So like my, it shifts my perspective from like, I really care about all instances of racial injustice to, oh, somebody's saying that there's an instance of racial injustice. Is this something worth caring about? Or is this is this like that uh, that thing I saw that blacks blacks in academia thing that I saw, and so it it it's sort of like I think this uh, yeah you can say like 
this is where our sphere of influence is. Therefore, we should focus on things within our sphere of influence. But I think there's these dual effects. Like one is that like you you might be sort of being misled and your attention derailed by things that aren't ultimately that important by like this focus on your specific sphere of influence where things might be actually kind of okay compared to like the worst kind of neighborhoods and the biggest problems. So you might be like uh, misallocating your attention, but also like you're, you're just like, uh, it's like the boy who cried wolf. Like you are sort of diluting the power of these words like racism and racial injustice by giving people a clear example uh, of, of this that like, they can see is not that important. And so, yeah, I'm curious, does he talk about these, yeah, just the psychology of like all of these discussions about racism in elite spaces and what they're doing to people? So he doesn't talk about the psychology of it per se, like he doesn't try and get in people's heads in that way, but he talks about those sorts of dynamics. And there's a quote, I, I hope I don't butcher it, um, where he's talking about, um, for example, centering the perspectives of refugees and immigrants um, and how it's, it's tough because in these conversations, the stuff that gets brought up and talked about is stuff that would not fundamentally change the structure of the system whatsoever. Um, and so the case he gives is that, you know, for all that we talk about centering in Skype calls, if you truly wanted to get the perspective of the people who are most affected by issues of immigration and refugees, that's hundreds of millions of people. You wouldn't be able to do that in a Skype call. You, you'd have to kind of expand what you consider to be community engagement instead of being with a bunch of professors, some of whom might have been refugees. Um, so he, he talks about that in the sense of it's a distraction, and it's a distraction that doesn't ultimately change structural issues it's more of a cosmetic change that makes us feel like we're doing better things, but not necessarily actually doing better things. And, and, and to Rachel's point, instead of spending a lot of time discussing, you know, should we center the experience of refugees in a Skype call, we should probably donate to refugees instead. Um, that would probably be more effective and a little bit less visible as well. I was interested in discussing this in the concept, uh, in the context of disability as well. Um, so, Highly recommend people check out the recent Barry Weiss podcast where she had Freddie DeBoer on, and they were talking a lot about it in terms of uh, mental uh, mental illness. Uh, but I've also had some like semi interesting but quickly aborted discussions on Twitter about autism uh, as well. And I, I think Ethan, you were sort of part of one of those, and we got this sort of interesting like angry response, and like kind of none of us. Like none of us sort of wanted to in engage with it. Is it I didn't even see. I didn't even get a notification. Like, what okay, I don't know saying. what you're talking about either. But, <laughs> maybe, um. maybe you weren't part of that. Um, so it was something like um, there was a discussion of is it is it eugenics to be looking for a cure for autism? Uh, maybe like some conference was cancelled because it was like they were going to be discussing cures for autism and then uh, sort of disability advocates got wind of it and shut it down because they were arguing that, like, how dare you? This is ableist. There's nothing wrong with being autistic. This is eugenics. You're trying to exterminate us. Uh, we are not, you know, like the autistic community is not 
any better or worse than you. It's just a different way. Uh, it's a different way of being. And I find this really interesting because I've worked as a carer for severely autistic people and like have sort of direct uh, experience in the, in this space and um, just couldn't disagree more <laughs> with this take. Like um, there's also a really good Scott Alexander piece where he was um, against against autism cure or something it was called. Uh, so I guess there's an, some organizational campaign called against autism cure, uh, which is just sort of this, yeah, being very offended by the idea that autism is something that needs to be cured. And uh, yeah, as you were pointing out in our chat, Ethan, like it's a pretty good example of elite capture in the sense that like the people who have autism, but also have the ability to advocate for themselves and be on Twitter and get offended and get angry at people for suggesting that autism uh, is something that we should be trying to cure are certainly not people with severe autism and, and are certainly not the people who are most strongly uh, affected by it. Before we go any further, I don't know if either of you knows the answer to this, but like I remember learning that at some point that either, I don't know which way they switched it, but like Asperger's was considered part of autism, but now it's not, or the other way around. To either of you. Asperger's has been folded into the autism diagnosis. Okay. So basically, is it more or less that like people with like Asperger's is kind of like the mild form of autism and more likely like the kinds of people who are doing the advocating and organizing and all of that, or is it like, uh, I don't know. That's my understanding. Yeah. It, it kind of got folded into the autism diagnosis and now there's this big autistic spectrum that encompasses a wide range of experiences. And so Asperger's used to be considered some distinct thing and now it's in that spectrum. Yeah, so I feel like maybe this would have been easier if they hadn't folded it in because then we could make this distinction between people who have like severe autism versus people who are just a little quirky. Um, mm. which, but I don't to, think there's any way to draw that line. Like it's really a spectrum. Like it really is. To play devil's advocate a little bit, at least in the context of autism cures, there's certainly organizations. I understand Autism Speaks is really controversial in the autistic community. And one of the things that Autism Speaks advocates for is a cure for autism, but they don't um, pursue, as I understand it, a cure for autism for people who want a cure for autism. They pursue a cure for autism that would presumably be applied to everybody. And I think there's a legitimate case for people who are very high functioning. I, I understand that term's controversial, but people who are very high-functioning autistic people whose lives probably aren't all that negatively impacted by autism. It's a, you know, the, it's a neurodivergence thing where they think a little bit differently, but they seem to have converted it into an asset in their jobs in the same way that someone with ADHD might be better served in lots of different jobs by virtue of having ADHD. And those people might not want a cure. And it's probably bad to force a cure like that on them. But it's what also is, true that there's a lot of, oh yeah. What is forcing, can you just be like more explicit? I don't know if you know, but like, what does that mean? What are they actually advocating for? They're not going to strap people down and inject them with needles, right? Well, my, my understanding is that they might advocate for, for example, prenatal screening to determine who has autism and either administer a cure or do like selective abortion or things like that. But that seems like it would probably still be up to the, I mean, decision of the parents in this, in that case, right? Like, 
like you can do screening for uh, chromosomal abnormalities, but then decide if you want to keep the fetus or not. Yeah, it's a tough issue because I guess the, the the worry would be that, you know, if you do this prenatal screen and you find that the, the future kid is going to have autism, you don't know which type, right? You don't know if they're going to have a lot of difficulties and need like a full-time care or something to look after them because they can't do things for themselves. Or if they're going to be the sort of person who I think Scott Alexander identifies as someone who might be autistic, you know, someone who can really succeed well in life and, and have lots of meaningful social connections and, and do all the things that we would expect of an average person. Yeah, I think that is where it gets tricky. Uh, like, I, yeah, it was interesting. So when my wife was pregnant, we had all the screenings and we had discussions about what we would do if the screening said certain things. And like, this was actually like an interesting thing that came out of working as a carer for me is that like prior to that experience, I would have been very morally conflicted about the idea of like, should I, you know, should we have an abortion? Should we abort a child with Down syndrome or should we abort a child that, you know, some screening to told us that they, there's a strong likelihood that they uh, would be autistic. After actually like working with autistic people and seeing like the more severe cases and also to be honest, the more severe cases of Down syndrome, like I don't, it's not unclear to me at all. Like I would absolutely abort a fetus that had one of these disabilities. Uh, like people like down syndrome, like people are awesome. Like they're so like very often like the nicest, warmest people that you would meet and a joy to be around. Uh, but severe, severe cases of down syndrome can be quite debilitating too. And can really like leave you with a person who needs help to get dressed like their entire life and like can sort of never hold down a job or really like never, never do anything. Right. So like, I mean, and that is just such a, the thing for me, like was always like th these people with disabilities, like they actually seem to kind of be fine. Like they're not like suffering day to day uh, as far as I could tell, like for the most part, although Scott Alexander gives a lot of examples of severe autism where it does certainly seem like the person's suffering, but yeah, for the most part, I kind of felt like, well, these people are fine, but it was more much for me about what it does to a family to have a severely disabled child. Because like, man, like I just saw people like, especially women, um, or, you know, people with the capacity for pregnancy who, their lives just were over kind of like for all intents and purposes, like the day that their severely disabled child was born. And like, I just from like having experience with the disabled people, but also the disabled parents, it was just so clear to me that abortion would have been the best, most humane thing, the best, you know, like situation for everybody in those circumstances. But anyway, like, uh, I am rambling a bit and I had a point I wanted to circle back to, which I think was just like, like what, like ableism has become a really popular term, right? And it seems to me that there's some clear examples of like, of, of ableism, uh, you know, like not having a ramp in your building for people to like not 
not making accommodations for deaf people or blind people to be able to in, enjoy TV shows or movies and stuff like that. But then like, once you get past those really simple examples, I just think the compl- the concept of ableism is really complex and like, it's actually very hard to think of a structure, like a feasible structure of society. That's not ableist. Do you know, like, so for example, like if you're any employer kind of has to be ableist in their hiring policies, right? Like you can't, you can't have no standards at all for what this person you're hiring is able to do. Like you can't have like, okay, like I'm trying to hire a computer programmer, but it, it doesn't really matter if you can computer program or even read or, or write, like, cause we, we're not ableist here and we'll accommodate, you know, like, I, unless I like we straw manning it a little bit, right? Like right. I think no one is, no one's making that demand or expectation of you hiring someone who can't do the job. I think where it gets tricky is like where you can hire them, but they'll need special accommodations that you then need to like figure out how to do. And so if you're a small business and you hire someone in a wheelchair, but you don't have a wheelchair accessible restroom, now you need to like do renovations and spend thousands of dollars to make that restroom accessible. And then like, there's a, that's where it kind of gets tricky is like, they, they can actually do the work. It's just, you have to make accommodations for them to be able to do that. Mm. Um, yeah. But that, yeah. And, and I, I don't know how America works, but at least in Canada, like we certainly have laws around how you manage those questions. And usually it's in the, in, in the case of like a small business, you have to show that you wouldn't be able to afford doing the accommodations and if you can't then you don't have to um mm. but otherwise you're expected to to accommodate mm. yeah right so like chase chase bank could probably afford like in the next search for like board members they could probably afford like somebody with severe like down syndrome to be a board member as long as like they they had somebody there like to assist them with all the tasks of being a board. Like, okay. So like, I don't know, yeah. okay, no. So you said like <laughs> I was straw manning it, but like what you just said, like, do you not see that that like, there's no clear line where that ends, right? Like, so the person who needs a ramp to get in is like, yeah, I can do the job, but I need X accommodation. Right. But like, do you not see that that sort of stretches even, f- even further? Like I can do the job but I just need like a helper there to. Okay. I can do like, the job, but I need someone else to do it for me is not, that's not a reasonable, <laughs> like, I feel like that is a, a clear distinction. Like, mm. I mean, I, I, I mean, I do see where you're coming from, like trying to, to show that, that there's a continuum here. And to some extent there is, but also it doesn't seem as, complicated or confusing to me as you're trying to make it out to be where it's like, yeah, if you can do the job and Mm. to do it, you need reasonable accommodations. Obviously it's going to depend on our definition of reasonable, but I don't know. I think you can Mm. find examples somewhere where there it'll be like actually controversial and people will disagree, Mm. but for the most part, 
I think it's going to be pretty clear cut. I don't know. And, and, okay, I'm certain, so like, and I'm certain that there's people who have those, those sort of things who are perfectly capable, right? Like, I, isn't Elon Musk autistic? Didn't he come out as autistic? Not sure. I don't know. Coming out. I feel like he did. Oh, yeah. He, he, he well, announced that he had Asperger's. Yeah. We, we have to hate him. <laughs> yeah. But, like, okay, so, like, take the example of, you know, when I was teaching, a lot of students had uh, disability accommodations, right? And they, you know, like UC Berkeley, they go in some meeting and collaborate with their medical professionals and then they get accommodations. So some kids get like time and a half on an exam. Some kids get double time. Uh, I think double time is about the most I've ever seen. But like, really, I mean, there's, there's people out there who would probably be capable of doing the course and the job if they had like, I don't know, a week to do the exam or like two weeks to do the exam or, or, you know, and like, I just think like the, yeah, this concept of like what's a reasonable accommodation is, is very fuzzy to me. And I just think like ultimately it, anywhere you draw that line and you say that like, well, if you're beyond that line and you need more than this level of accommodation, you just can't do this job. Sorry. Like, um, like, isn't that, isn't that ableism or like, yeah, it's just weird to me to think, well, there's some like fuzzy line of what a reasonable accommodation is and refusing to provide that level of accommodation is ableism. And then beyond that, it's like, oh, well, you know, that's the point where we have to be ableist because like that person really can't do it. I think it's up to the business. They can do whatever they want most of the time, unless there's like a a serious access issue. Um, Yeah. I don't know. But, but I also, I also think that in this case, I mean, we're, we're talking about people who, I mean, you were talking about like a Down syndrome person who was going to serve on a board of executives. That, that's mm-hmm. just so far and away from, I mean, this is back to the elite capture. This is so far and away from the average experience of someone who might have Down syndrome or who might have autism or something like that. You know, if we're at the point where we're talking about a university mm-hmm. considering, do we give this person with ADHD double time on a test? They're mm-hmm. already doing pretty well for themselves. Um, and, and, and while it's certainly an issue to talk about it, it might not be the most pressing issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess I think I'm interested in, in where do we go from here if for each group that is somehow marginalized or disadvantaged, there's always going to be like the top high functioning members of that group that are going to be there to advocate. And they're not necessarily going to do a good job of representing the entire group. And they may not even see people at lower ends of the group as being in the same group as them. Like, what a what's the what's the solution or like what would you recommend like what would we do about that well i know i know what olufemi would recommend which is that everyone gets their basic needs met in a marxist utopian society um and 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 maybe even the more uh the more libertarian scott alexander might say well we need a universal basic income so that everyone is at least at some threshold floor of uh you know, be, being able to live their life at least to a decent level. I, I, I think it's probably a bad thing if we're talking about like focusing specifically on employment and how we can manage getting people employment. Because even if people don't 
um, or people aren't able to get employment in the way that we might want them to, they should still not die, probably. Well, we should just prevent them from being born in the first place. But, um, <laughs> but uh, no, but what you're saying is sort of like, what's the, I guess, the end solution that would that, that we should strive for. But I guess my question is, how do we, how do we get there if the people advocating are the, aren't, aren't doing a good job of representing like the whole spectrum of the cause that they're advocating for? Well, I, th- I think this is where you don't necessarily need to be a part of a group to advocate for it, right? I can imagine there's many researchers who do research on specifically the issues that autistic people face, for example, um, especially people with very severe forms of autism who aren't able to advocate for themselves. And those researchers don't need to be autistic themselves because people who are very high functioning and autistic probably aren't even thinking about the people who have that sort of worse experience. You can have researchers advocate for them uh, as well. And, and you can advocate for policy interventions, right? The expansion of welfare state benefits specifically for people who might need it. Um, I, I just think uh, per- personally, and, and I think Olaf, we would probably agree that the focus on centering you know, a given person who happens to belong to a marginalized group is not a guarantee that you're going to end up with policy prescriptions or outcomes that are necessarily tied to the benefit of the larger group as a whole, as opposed to the person who's specifically doing the advocacy. Yeah. I had a friend in college who uh, stopped speaking with me because she was saying that we need to have a homeless person as president because only then would homeless homeless people's needs be taken care of. And I was like, I don't know. I don't think homeless people would do a good job at being president. And so that's when we stopped being That's part of my issue. That, that's part of my issue with some of like the, the mental health discourse that you see online is that people sometimes confuse the question of should we treat people decently with the question of is there anything wrong with these people or are these people not suited for certain roles or whatever, right? Like you might agree that, you know, a lot of people who are homeless are often homeless on account of drug addictions or mental health problems or whatever, things that might actually make them unpleasant, poor life decisions, things that might actually make them unpleasant to be around. Like you probably wouldn't want to be buddies with them. However, they still deserve support. They still deserve to be advocated for to some degree. And, And I think at least in cases of um, ableism with respect to autism, like the online conversations that I was involved with with Paul, it was a lot of people saying, well, autism isn't actually a disability or, or autism isn't a negative thing. And I think they're confusing that question with should we treat people with autism decently? And the answer to that's yes. And then the question as to whether it's a disability, I mean, you can talk about that in specific cases, but that answer isn't necessarily tied to do we treat people decently? Well, yeah, I don't mean, I don't think that's the only, I think re- that's part of it, but more of the confusion is in the the spectrum and like there being a continuum and yeah. i think the people who are saying autism is not a disease are really thinking about asperger's or high functioning autism or whatever we want to call it but they're not thinking of the people who are you know just like mm-hmm. are nonverbal and uh violent or whatever like um yeah it's, it's the same difference it's the same difference between like when freddie debauer had that very wise piece where he was talking about how um, I mean, he had bipolar disorder. He had, he had it in his head that, you know, his girlfriend was sneaking glass into his sandwiches and was trying to kill him. And had she been in the room with him, he would have killed her. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and that experience is going to be very different from someone who's bipolar, but has a much more mild form of bipolar that lets them go and have fun partying and then 
they they can have depressive states and stuff, but not to the point where they're going to kill their girlfriend or their boyfriend or something like that. Um, I, I think it's okay to admit that there's a spectrum and, and that we need to tailor our interventions to people at different points in the spectrum. I want to ask you guys uh, your thoughts about this. So like um, in undergrad philosophy, we were sort of discussing um, a class called biomedical ethics uh, and that we were discussing uh, the deaf community uh, and the deaf community um, is pretty like uh, proud, right? Like, and and is there are definitely people in the deaf community who argue that being deaf is not a disability. Like, it's they're like completely equal. It's just as good to be deaf as to uh, have hearing. And the there's a like controversial issue where deaf parents who have deaf children uh, want to sort of prevent them having like hearing aids or ever being able to hear because they want them to be like a part of their community. And I remember this thought experiment that the lecturer sort of put us through, which was like, you know, most people, you know, kind of have this sort of like, uh, like amateur relativism where they uh, sort of convinced on the face of these arguments and they're like, yeah, who are we? Like, I'm not deaf. Who am I to judge like that? It's worse and stuff like that. Uh, so most most people were kind of on the side of the deaf parents who want to their kid to remain deaf. But then the thought experiment was like, okay, well, what if deaf parents have a kid who has no problem with their hearing, but then like just puncture their eardrums to make them deaf? Um, and that was quite a powerful thought experiment because it almost changed everybody in the class's mind. And they were like, oh, well, no, I don't think that would be cool. And then what the reasoning was, well, if you don't think that would be cool, then aren't you implicitly admitting that like the parents are doing something bad, like they're taking something of value away from this kid by taking their, their hearing away from them. And then most people were kind of forced to admit that, oh yeah, I guess like I do kind of think like making a kid deaf is a bad thing to do to them. Therefore I do think it's better to have hearing than, than be deaf. And then like the logical conclusion is therefore, I think it's also wrong for like deaf parents to prevent their child um, getting a hearing aid or getting, getting treatment to like fix their hearing. I'm curious your thoughts about this. Um, Well, first of all, I think I went through the same uh, thought experiment in my philosophy class. So um, yeah, but I think that I'll just say like, People are inconsistent about, well, in my view, um, uh, like action versus inaction having an impact on their moral decision making. And like you can see that in the trolley problem where people will divert the trolley, but like they won't push, uh, you know, the fat guy onto the tracks because like that's like too active or whatever. And it's like that makes no sense to me. Um, And so that's, I think, what it really accounts for that difference in people's reactions um, is, like, you don't want to, if you're actively making them deaf, that's different from them being deaf and not helping them not be deaf, because for some reason... No, but, like, if you actively make them hear, I think you have a very different response, right? Like, so if there's some procedure that they're doing to the kids to make them be able to hear, I think your intuitions would be very different about it, and that still gets you to the basic point of the experiment, which is that, like, you know, you do accept that there's a difference between the two states of being able to hear. Well, I don't know. I think the action is, like, causing harm. Like, that's what's wrong. Yeah, but that's the point. You think it's (laughs) it's causing harm because it's taking away the hearing, but that's that's the whole point, that you think that's harm. 
I think it causes harm in a different way in that it takes agency away from the, the, the child who doesn't necessarily have a choice as to whether or not they're hearing or deaf. And, and, and the thing that I would point out is an asymmetry in the sense that like, you know, it's really tough to get people from deaf to hearing again. That's really tough to do, but it's quite easy to get them from hearing to, to, to deaf. And so you should probably leave them uh, hearing until such time as they can choose that they want to deafen themselves, which is a weird bullet to bite. But yeah. But that's going to be a fun moral dilemma. Maybe I'll make that into a TikTok poll. Be fun. I, I don't. I don't think it's quite controversial enough that I would worry about angry yeah. letters. Yeah, I think you'd be fine. So I also like, just wanted to. Uh, I don't know if I want to share this, but anyway. So the other. Yeah, sure. Like I can edit it out if I don't like how this goes. But like, I wanted to get your thoughts. So I had this other interesting discussion on Twitter the other day uh, where autism came up, and it was actually in the context of. So a woman was sort of posting that she had um, somebody sent an angry email that they had failed to cite them in some academic paper and they had, they had CC'd um, like many, many different sort of unrelated people. And they had CC'd the vice president of their university in this angry email. And uh, Interestingly, she didn't specify that it was a man, which makes me think it was probably a woman. Cause like, I just think you kind of would, you, you would like, it would go more viral if it was a man that did this crazy bullying thing. But anyway, the vast majority of the responses were just of the, of the form of like, you know, sorry, that happened to you completely unacceptable. Academia is a toxic place. Like how, how dare he just sort of had a lot of assumptions that it was a dude. But anyway, like I was, I was like, I don't know, I was reading this and then I thought like, huh, like this is quite strange behavior by this person. Like it's, it's not normal uh, to send this email. Um, and it sort of seemed kind of like autistic behavior to me. Like this thing of like, first of all, like really not showing like a real ignorance of like social mores and social cues and how this is going to be responded to by other people and how this is going to look to other people. But also this thing of just like, it seems like, like not being able to let go of some little thing and just like getting super caught up on some little thing, which, you know, in my experience is uh, associated with people with autism too. So like I wrote a comment and I was like, like, you know, I'm not, I said, I'm not excusing the behavior and I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't need to be addressed. Um, but like, it, it kind of seems to me to be, well, I said, like, in all honesty, it seems highly possible that this person is on the spectrum. Uh, and like all things considered, you know, if they, if they are, it's kind of good that they were able to have a career, uh, in academia. And, and the person uh, who wrote the original tweet responded and she later deleted this, but she was like, oh uh, yeah, I think I actually think they are unwell. So she was saying like, I don't know if it's autism, but they might be going through some mental health thing. Uh, but then she said, but I still need to like protect myself, yada, yada, yada. And I said, yeah, sure. Like I, yeah, you totally need to protect yourself. But it just seemed to me that this behavior is like so far out of the range of normal that it goes beyond this person's just a jerk. Like it definitely seems like there's something more going on here. What does what does protect yourself mean here? I'm not sure. No, she well, like she said in her original tweet, she's like, she, oh, in one of the responses, maybe she said she'd already like just logged it with HR or something like that. But like, obviously, you're not protecting yourself by posting on Twitter about it. 
Um, right. It seemed more of like, I just need yeah. to cause yeah, a yeah. moral outrage case. Yeah. You know? Right. Or I like, I'll get a lot of likes and a lot of attention and stuff like that. And that's fine too. Cause she didn't name the person. So like, you know, whatever, get your, get your attention. That's fine. But like, I guess I just like, was like thinking that, you know, maybe it's worth considering. Yeah. That this person like, yeah. The, and I think mental illness uh, some kind of mental illness episode is another equally plausible explanation for this abnormal behavior, but this behavior is like pretty abnormal and that's why it's going viral. Like, and that's why you're getting all the attention and like, isn't it worth considering that like, yeah, maybe this person is like on the spectrum or something. Anyway, uh, I muted the thread, but I got a lot of like accusations of how dare you, this is ableist. What you just, autism doesn't equal bullying. Um, and other people were just like, what you think you can diagnose autism? Just, and I was like, no, no, like I didn't respond. Cause like, to be honest, like I'm not, like I'm not ready to like publicly engage with people on this issue. And I think like most, most people aren't. And that that's probably why it's not, it's not going well. Um, Cause even me, I have pretty strong feelings about it and pretty good, like personal experience with severe cases of autism. I don't want to argue with these people on Twitter. Like, like angry people who are accusing me of being ableist, like that doesn't seem worth it for me. But, but like, I don't know. I guess like the experience just made Ethan, me. Ethan, th- you should just interrupt, Paul. <laughs> What's that? Okay. I feel like Ethan wanted to say something, but he wasn't interrupting you. But he, I was just informing him of like, if you're going on, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I was just gonna say that. Like, I, I mean, I experienced that all the time on on TikTok as. Um, you know, when, when, when you, when you get to a big enough level where you have lots of videos that are very popular, you get, you get some people who just, uh, they'll start spamming you with comments that are extremely angry. They'll reach out to your Instagram DMS. They'll find you on Twitter and they'll start, they'll start tweeting angry things at you. They'll start replying underneath it. And, and when people are going through these clearly like very abnormal episodes, um, you know, I, I think it's just the better thing to just block them and move on because frankly, you know, in, in the case of that professor you were talking about she's very unlikely to be harmed you know if your provost or your dean receives an angry email that you failed to cite this one paper um is anything going to happen probably not like it's probably just a better idea to just bury it and then move on with your life i I think people sometimes fixate a little bit too much on the crazy actions of other people when you should just kind of ignore it and and move on block block and move on is is the general strategy i think it's probably healthier for everybody involved Mm. Yeah, but I guess my walking... question. My question is more like, <laughs> you know, from my point of view, like I hear about this behavior that to me has some hallmarks of autism associated with it, right? And some of the like, I guess, negative sides or the kind of sides of autism that can lead to antisocial kind of behaviors. And, you know, I just kind of point that out. And to people that like that's ableist, right? And I guess the idea is like you are associating these negative behaviors with this condition. Like you're implying that, like, I guess there's something bad about, like, yeah. So, like, the, and they, Freddie DeBoer talked about this too with Barry Weiss. It's like we're almost at this point that it's ableist to say that, like, anything about autism is bad or that, like, autism or that these negative antisocial behaviors are reminiscent of autism and stuff like that. And I think like that seems to me to be a pretty unhealthy place for the conversation to be. If you like people, 
you're really upset if you say anything about this disability is bad. Yeah, people are really, I I think people are really resistant to the idea that having a disability or having a mental illness can make you a worse person in some respects. And and I, I think it's just strictly true that sometimes people with mental health problems, if you have depression, you're probably going to end up being a worse friend to the people around you because you're struggling with so much inside yourself. Um, similarly, if you have schizophrenia and, and you have auditory hallucinations, that might make you take crazy actions that, that might hurt other people. And I, and I think, again, tying back to elite capture stuff, you know, that, that, that's something that's not discussed about enough because the people who often get to represent disabled communities tend to be doing pretty well for themselves. Um, and they tend to have like very good coping strategies such that they're able to achieve some degree of prominence. Um, but people just, yeah, they, they, they shy away from harder conversations, about the impacts that mental health can have on your interactions with others and whether or not you are capable of harming other people. Yes. I also just think like people who sort of advocate for neurodiversity, like, isn't part of that, the idea that like, we sort of accept that some people have different ways of being. Some people have conditions like autism and stuff like that and respond differently and do things that might seem quite strange to us, you know, and some of those things might be like super weird things like emailing the CCing the president of a university on an email because somebody didn't cite your research and stuff like that. So like surely if you want neurodiversity, you can't at the same time like get upset at people who, you know, when they hear about quite strange behavior, say something like, oh, well, you know, like maybe, maybe this person's just on the, on the spectrum. Uh, and that's the reason for this seemingly antisocial behavior. And maybe we should like, like uh, incorporate that possible explanation as we react to this, this tweet about this weird behavior. Yeah. I think it's the same, like when it comes to like being multicultural, like having people from different cultural backgrounds, because I think the same argument applies where people respond differently and have different norms. And like, you know, for example, as an Israeli, I've been told that uh, I am more direct than other people and that, um, you know, uh, more blunt or whatever. And I guess Israelis are kind of autistic. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so like, you know, but then the people, people are like, well, you're not behaving professionally or like you shouldn't say those things. Well, okay. But that's how my culture is. Like, I thought that we were, wanted to be multicultural mm-hmm. and accept people. So you should just tell me I've Asperger's. It might go better. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I actually don't think that um, my personality is influenced by being Israeli. I think I just am the way I am genetically yeah. or whatever. Um, but anyway, I one thing I wanted to say, though, was I think what you're arguing for, Paul, also applies to the way people are responding to your arguments. Like if, And also what Ethan was saying, like if people are obsessively following you on every social media and attacking you, it's probably because there's something going on with them and like maybe they're autistic or have some other mental health issue or whatever. So you should be equally uh, accommodating and accepting of people not being accommodating and accepting of 
your comments. Yeah, yeah, good point. I'm sure that would have gone over really well if I hadn't said, look, <laughs> these people <laughs> accusing me of like an ableist comment. I've said, look, you seem to have some kind of mental thing going on. <laughs> so like, it's okay. Um, Throw at every therapy term. You've been gaslighting me. You're doing everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Just know that I'm here for you. Uh, and you calm, calm down. No, like, yeah. But it's true. Like, I mean, there's no free will anyway. Like, yeah, all all our actions are predetermined. So, like, I, fi- I find a, 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 a very a very good comment. In, instead of telling people they have mental illness, you just tell people to go touch grass. That's the online community way. You know, go outside, touch the grass, do something that's not on Twitter. I'm curious um, where that came from. Uh, and if it, it came actually, from Twitch. If it works, it came from live streaming uh, stuff. Yeah, and 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 it's just nice. It's just. I've said it before to many people in TikTok comment sections to go outside, touch some grass. Um, it's nice because it doesn't implicate them in any way. It doesn't say you have a mental illness. It doesn't say there's anything wrong with you. Just take a break for a little bit. Go outside, touch some grass. It's incredibly condescending. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I condescending in a safe way. Like, go touch grass. But everybody does need to touch grass these days. It's true. Like, we all need to touch grass. I constantly need to touch grass. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I hadn't I'm heard that before. Lost. I'm glad that you're. Uh, oh, it's 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 going to be a young person thing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. that's what I, I see. I feel like I'm pretty like fluent in young person. Uh, I just I think I stare at screens enough. Like I don't know, Ethan, you're 23. Throw some like young young person lingo at me <laughs> and like test me. See if I if I told you the word based. What do you think that means? Oh, I think I pretty much know what that means. So it's like, isn't it kind of like woke, but the opposite of woke? Like you're kind of purple pilled no. in, in a kind of cool way. Is it? Wait, I want to. I want to say what my intuitions are. Okay. It's yeah. like where you're, like not being authentic, kind of like you're. Uh, no, I, I don't know. No, so so when you when you're based, that means that you're being authentically yourself. Consequences be damned. You're just you're just saying oh, what's I'll true, regardless it. of consequence. Um, yeah, it's usually a term of admiration. You usually call people based when they say something you agree with. That's very controversial. Okay, so I don't know. no, I had no points, no points for either of us. <laughs> <All right. laughs> this is fun. <laughs> I mean, I guess you already know what cringe is because that, that's the that's the dichotomy. You can be based or you can be cringe um, because sometimes being authentically yourself, if you're authentically yourself about something that's kind of cringe, then that's pretty cringe, right? It's uh, yeah. No, I wouldn't, have got, I wouldn't have got that one either. <laughs> Wait, right, it's cringe right, doesn't mean I'm, cringe anymore? You've made me feel very old. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Ethan. Yeah. Um, cringed. What is, what is, uh, what is woman mean? <laughs> Woman? Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> I see. I was seriously thinking about it for a second. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, we don't have time. Come on. You should let's have. Just, you should have Senator Holly on your podcast. Let's just invite. Let's just invite Ethan back in a couple of weeks, and we can talk about the other stuff that we wanted to talk about. We've been going yeah. over two hours. All right. Yeah. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, let's wrap it up. Thank you so much, dude. Uh, it was great to meet you. Everybody, uh, so I, I guess like uh, send me the link to your TikTok account, uh, and I'll link people oh, to your Twitter. <laughs> but seriously, people, like this guy, 
I think you have like 500 followers on Twitter or something like that. It's like, I, I'd say you're the most, uh, uh, like disproportionate quality of content to follow a ratio of almost anybody I know. So like, yeah, this guy needs more. The, the, the trick is to lead in tweets that aren't bangers. You just choose the good ones. <laughs> oh, is that what you do? Okay. Nice. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, give him a follow and yeah, all the best with your research and good luck with the TikTok stuff. And yeah, we'll hope. Yeah. We should have you on again soon. We have like five other things that we want yeah. to talk about. So. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, great having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome.